see it's been packaged quite nicely. So this is my altered American flag. Uh, this is called Betsy Ross Got the Blues. And this was during um, the 2016 presidential election where I was thinking a lot about how we are a country of multiple realities. Tiffany Lin is an artist and professor at UNLV. She recently invited assistant producer Nessa Concepcion to look at some of her recent works. The slot machine, you can just put a coin in. Slots read, Justice Loses One, Peace Unites Air, and State Claims Sky. Pretty noisy with the, with the coins, but I think that works. This slot machine-inspired piece deals with the concept of nationalism and what it means to be American. But my more recent work deals with uh, more of the actual language we use to describe ourselves, which is why I'm so invested in exploring racial categories. More specifically, Tiffany's most recent project is based on the U.S. Census. That's what we're talking about today. The census is an important source of data. It's how we've learned that Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders are the fastest growing group in Southern Nevada. But the census is also a process fraught with complications. People don't always fit into neat little boxes. You're listening to Exit Spring Mountain, a podcast from Nevada Public Radio about Asian American and Pacific Islander issues in Southern Nevada. I'm your host, Lorraine Blanco Moss. And today, we're taking a look at one of our country's oldest institutions, the U.S. Census. Why is the census mandated in the Constitution? What does it tell us about AAPI communities in Nevada? And how has the census evolved to reflect our changing nation and our changing ideas of race? bubbles you had to fill out in school as a kid? You had your number two pencil and so many empty circles. For me, the task felt like it tested my loyalty as I got to that dang race question. Do I represent my father? Asian? Or do I mark Hispanic? Oh no, there's a Pacific Islander category as well. My pencil hovers. Should I choose to rep my mom instead? Caucasian? Is Portuguese Hispanic? But she was born in Asia. Ugh. This is like picking teams in PE. No one's going to be satisfied. Race is one of the most challenging and challenged parts of any survey, including the census. And it's been that way for a long time. Tiffany Lynn says the first census happened in 1790, partly to determine how many young men were eligible to join the military. But it also is implied that you need to monitor population growth. So um, they also start counting um, women and children. But at the time, of course, in 1790, slavery is still in existence. The first three surveys offered just three race options. Quote, free whites, all other free persons, and slaves. 
but this is where we get the three-fifths compromise in which slaves are not counted as full humans, but are used as a way to leverage uh, congressional representation, right? So it does give slave-owning states more power because they are allowed to count their, quote, property at the time um, as people represented within this district. The census laid bare the hypocrisy and blatant racism of the era. Enslaved people were dehumanized, but still partially counted to give free white people in their states more representation in government. So the biggest change is going to happen after the Civil War. Up until then, it's really only counting white and black slaves. And after that, you start to have more gray area in terms of counting people who are multiracial. The census wasn't self-reported until 1960. Census takers would go door to door, look at you, and they would decide your race. But also around the same time, around the Civil War, we also have not huge, but a significant number of um, Chinese migrants moving to the United States to work as laborers on the Transcontinental Railroad. The census started counting Native Americans in 1860. It added categories for, quote, mulattoes and Chinese in 1870. It's continued to evolve since. To some degree, the census tries to reflect the changing demographics of the U.S. But census data is also connected intimately to power. The framers of our Constitution based representation in Congress not on land ownership, not on wealth, but instead on population. For example, Nevada gained a fourth House seat after the 2010 census showed that our population increased relative to other states. Census data impacts many other important things, like funding allocation. And the Constitution's mandated once in every 10 years. That decides uh, about 600 to 700 billion dollars of funding on the federal side. So for Nevada, every year is about six to seven billion of federal funding that was allocated based on census. My name is Eric Chang. I am the Director of Outreach for Asian Community Development Council. So for us, especially that federal funding that was calculated by census, really impact our community. The largest of that will go into healthcare and the education. The ACDC led an awareness campaign to encourage members of AAPI communities here in Nevada to respond to the census. I think the last administration tried to add a citizenship question. I think it had a lawsuit very fortunately, the circuit courts decide that this is unconstitutional and was not going forward. The Census Bureau's own experts agreed that a citizenship question would have deterred 6.5 million people from responding, leading to undercounts of immigrants and non-citizens. And we were able to go on and say for every Nevadan, if people are undercounted, for every person that we did not count, we lose out 10, 12,000 in 10 years just because of how much money that was losing. 
So I think that's the part that we're trying to communicate to our communities, and especially in the middle of the pandemic, trying to let people know, like even for government to prepare for masks, for preparing for、uh, preparing for vaccine, all that is based on census data. So to recap, the census is important for deciding how many representatives our state gets in the House. It determines federal funding for social services, and here's where the race question comes in. That can help enforce civil rights legislation, like the Voting Rights Act, and equal employment. The racial demographics of a region. Also influence political debates over redistricting. Yeah, Dave and Kalina, local governments like the Clark County Commission often affect your lives in more direct ways. It's our special session in Carson City, drawing up redistricting maps. Governor Steve Sisolak is calling for a special session to address redistricting. Political debates rage over how district lines are drawn because a large collection of one racial group within a district could sway an election. And conversely, splitting up that group could dilute their voting power. But Eric says, seeing AAPI representation concentrated within one district goes beyond party politics. No matter it's Democrat or Republican, no matter which party, people that want to represent the district with a higher percentage of Asian Pacific Islanders, that means we can bring our shared interest to these elected officials. So, for example, the Asian and Pacific Islander communities here in Las Vegas—they're not a monolith.、Uh, people vote very differently. However, their shared concerns about health equity, about education, about our school districts, and about immigration reform—all these different things—and most importantly, going back to what I said earlier, language resources—and these are the things that we're able to push because of now there are districts. That have higher percentage of Asian Pacific Islanders. Our redistricting process was finalized in November, and it drew criticism from both sides of the aisle. In particular, some community activists argued that historically Latino neighborhoods were divided along the new lines. Interestingly, at least one of the new districts was drawn in a way that favors AAPI communities. But because the way the new district maps are drawn on the congressional district side, congressional district three. Will now have、uh, more than 20 percent of AAPI residents in Congressional District Three, and that means encompassing from Chinatown to Spring Valley to Enterprise to the Southwest, where the most growth is happening for the AAPI community. That Congressional District now will encompass all of them. So, whomever that is elected to represent the AAPI issues. Uh, to represent Congressional District Three, will have really to prioritize the AAPI community and their issues. Coming up, how the census falls short on the race question. You're listening to Exit Spring Mountain, a podcast from Nevada Public Radio. About Asian American and Pacific Islander issues in Southern Nevada. I'm your host, Lorraine Blanco Moss, and in this episode, we're talking about the promises and perils of the U.S. Census. We just talked about the importance of the census, how it affects Nevada's seats in Congress, and the battles over redistricting. Census data 
is also crucial to our state getting the right amount of federal funding for social services, like education, health, and housing. But as important as the census is, the questions about race can sometimes fall short. So question eight reads, is person one of Hispanic, Latino, or Spanish origin? Typically, I always say no, not of Hispanic origin or Latino or Spanish origin. This is Talia Melville, a student at UNLV. And for Talia, answering the census questions is complicated. So racially and ethnically, I have a lot of background. So I have, God, I have to, I have to say it out loud every time I have to count it. So I identify as Japanese, Chinese, Korean, Hawaiian, African-American, and Jewish. So Chinese, Korean, Hawaiian. Yeah. Okay. That's all of it. Up until the year 2000, multiracial people like me and like Talia didn't have the option of choosing more than one race in the U.S. Census. Question nine reads, what is person one's race? Mark X one or more boxes and print origins. I don't remember having to write down origins, but I typically put white and in the boxes I would put Jewish, Black or African-American. I would also check, but my dad is actually born and raised in South America. So I'm not entirely sure. I would probably just put African-American because that's how I grew up. But yeah. And then I would also check Chinese, Native Hawaiian, Korean, and Japanese. And yeah. And lately, Talia has been wondering whether or not she should check the Hispanic box too. Because like she said, her dad was born in Guyana. But there was something else, too. I did a 23andMe test, and it recently checked that I may have some family history in Barbados down in South America. So I'm not entirely sure, but typically I would put no, because as far as I know, the answer is no. Talia's story is part of a rising trend. Between 2010 and 2020, the number of people who identify as multiracial grew by an astounding 276%. Demographers think that's partly because there are a lot more kids who are born to parents of different races, and partly because the census changed the way they wrote some of the questions. But some also think it might have something to do with the rise of DNA testing kits. Which is 13% Polynesian. Polynesian, if you look at it. No, I've never known that. Wait. There's a little P.I. in me, like... <laughs> yes, there's a little P.I. in you. You guys, I, I always wondered where... There was, like, a weird little side of some swag that I'm not sure where it came from. Those kits might be giving more Americans a sense that their genetic makeup equals their racial identity, rather than more recent family history or social experiences informing that identity. Oh, look, East Asian and Native American... You're 21%. 15% African? Sub-Saharan Africa, 15.3%. I would have never guessed that. Middle Eastern, 0.08. And unassigned, 0.27. That's the part that comes from Mars. At least for now, DNA kits are likely just a small portion of multiracial responses. Only 16% of Americans have taken a DNA test. And America really is becoming more multiracial. In the last census... 14% of Nevadans identified as two or more races, a rate that has nearly tripled in the last decade. U.S. News & World Report has dubbed Nevada 
the future face of America. I think that as far as what it could tell us is that we are continuing to have a country that will probably look more like Nevada in the future. This is Christine Espinosa, a Ph.D. student at UNLV. Part of her research involves looking at racial data at diverse institutions like UNLV. So as far as like my project goes, the Countess Inn project, it's really just advocating for the institutionalization of having more options for students to select to like better or more accurately represent who they are. Christina spent a lot of time thinking about racialized survey categories. So I guess we can start off with like the question of like, do the existing racialized categories accurately capture or represent individuals who fall in them or maybe are subjected to these categories? Accurate representation matters. Christine says that categories like AAPI can hide a lot of important differences in the data. It's why she's an advocate for data disaggregation or breaking down the data to expose those differences. In the aggregate, it's an estimated 34% of Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders have earned a bachelor's degree or higher. And that comparing that to a 72.1% of Asian Indians whose educational attainment was at least at the bachelor's degree or higher. So for Native Hawaiians, 18.1% whose highest degree was a bachelor's degree or higher. We've talked a little bit about what gets lost when the term AAPI is used as a stand-in for Asian Americans. This statistic is a good example of that. Data disaggregation is really about, okay, well, what about looking at the subgroups that fall under this umbrella rather than treating it as just a monolith? Because then we might not necessarily get to capture or represent just differences, if there are any, right, among groups, if it's just all like averaged out, if you will, into one. For Christine, calling these categories racialized instead of racial is an important distinction. I think I've tried to stay away from just saying race to just place more attention on how this is an active project of like a, a racialization process, like that we are placing meaning to this, this term. As changes in the census categories show us, our ideas about who counts as what race have changed a lot over time. Just think back to the census pre-1960 when the census taker would decide your race. Or the pre-2000 census when multiracial people like me didn't have a box to check. But another big part of this project is also to observe closely how language changes over time, but also reflects our own shifts in identity. So this is kind of a small change that I'm not sure, I'm not sure if we'll see it in our lifetime. But, you know, I was remarking earlier on the current census form, like Egyptian is under white, right? This is Tiffany Lin again the artist and professor we interviewed at the beginning of the episode. And, you know, many people would debate that, right, when we look at the actual geography, but also even the way we identify Europe, like people of European or Asian descent, that has now come into question. In the current census, people of Middle Eastern heritage are considered, quote, white. But Tiffany says that some people with a Middle Eastern background are finding that the term Western Asia is a better fit. And it's sort of, I don't want to say 
owning, but it is kind of separating themselves from this notion of whiteness in the U.S. Um, because they feel that their experiences as you know first or second generation Americans is more of an immigrant story. So they align themselves more with like the category of Asian, right? Because they have that experience of um, displacement, not speaking the language. Some people are refugees, right? And so um, it becomes very much political, right? It's more than just language. It's like, how does my experience tie to a longer history of struggle, right? Legal scholar Dorothy Roberts once wrote, race is not a biological category that is politically charged. It is a political category that has been disguised as a biological one. And as our academic research consultant Mark Padungpat points out, a person can fill out a dozen census forms over their life and change their race perhaps several times. Talia points out that her racial identity has a lot less to do with percentages and numbers and a lot more to do with her family and her community. I think it's everything, honestly, like the elders, the stories that they pass on, the food, the way that the food is made, the way that people live. I think it all carries over because people who aren't even, who have an identity of one, they still learned it and they're still doing what was taught to them to pass it over into the future generations. When Talia was in high school raising money for her volleyball team, she and her mom bonded over a uniquely Hawaiian cooking tradition. So we had a contact where we would go to their house. They would make an emu, which is pretty much a pit in the ground. And they would just cook the pig in the ground, cover it. It was a whole pig. And then they would take it out and we would shred it to pieces. And it would be homemade, authentically made Kalua pig. And we would sell it. In those moments, Talia felt a deep connection to her native Hawaiian culture. Even though there might be somebody who's even like less than 15% Hawaiian, they're still practicing the traditions from some point of their ancestors used to do on a day-to-day basis. To Talia's family, like many native Hawaiians, their sense of Hawaiian-ness isn't based on a blood quantum. That kind of logic undermines more inclusive native Hawaiian ideas of belonging. So it's just like, you need to accept whatever they identify, whatever is within their bloodline, because that portion is still there. And being Native Hawaiian, we're very in touch with our heritage, and we always try to keep it as strong as possible. As stories like Talia's illustrate, our genetics do not equal our race. It's with this understanding that Christine approaches her research on racialized data with caution, but she still thinks that it's important for us to gather. So if we approach it with neutrality, if we approach it as if like race doesn't matter, that it didn't have material consequence, we would be doing a disservice. We would not actually be thoughtful in targeting, you know, what needs to happen, what needs to change. So I, I, I guess I just wanted to start from that place because uh, if we don't recognize that, you know, our institutions have been racialized, then we need to have an appropriate action that is in alignment with that, you know, the, the initial problem. As imperfect as census data on race may be, it still helps us to understand the very problems that these race questions reflect. I, I don't know. Like, I think that's that's what I think about also. It's like, 
yeah, I, I, I think it's important for us to remember the his, the historical legacies of, you know, we're talking about like the U.S. Census and historical legacies right now that I just mentioned about higher education to propel us into transformational change, like a meaningful change. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I've definitely been optimist. <laughs> so what might the census of the future look like? That's something Tiffany Lin included in her public art project, 24 Views. This category, these boxes are always going to shift over time, and we might have to reconsider how we're going to ask these questions in the future. As part of the project, Tiffany imagined a census that we might take 1,000 years from now. She calls it the U.S. Hemi-1 Census 3020. So 1,000 years from now, uh, my idea is that at this point, um, our nation uh, will probably have joined some sort of larger nation state. So you can fill this out manually or you can connect via Neuralink, which in my world is essentially a small device that's embedded into your brain and then you can log on to the internet from there. Uh, So the question one is how many entities were living or staying in this compound home, apartment or encampment on April 1st through 3020? Tiffany's census of 3020 asks about eye color, but includes an option for a cybernetic eye. Does this entity possess an organic circulatory system? You know, talking about AI, right? And also, does AI actually have a race or ethnicity? So you are allowed to um, print all known racial, ethnic, and ancestral affiliations. But in this world, um, everyone is categorized by melanin index. So that was, I I kind of am thinking it probably is impossible for us to completely divorce this idea of skin color from race. Um, I think it just, um, we are still so tethered to this idea of linking race to biology. um, And I don't think it's going to go away even a thousand years from now. But I think the way we talk about it is going to change as we become more mixed. The idea of racial categories might not ever go away but it'll certainly continue to change. And so will the U.S. Census. After all, the census has always been a reflection of our times, a mirror held up to our present-day notions of what it means to be, to belong, and to become. You've been listening to Exit Spring Mountain, a podcast from Nevada Public Radio. We record this show on the lands of the Southern Paiute people. Thank you to our guests this episode, Tiffany Lin, Eric Jang, Talia Melville, and Christine Espinosa. This podcast was made possible with support from Arcata Associates. Music in this episode is courtesy of Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Our team includes executive producer Sonia Cho Swanson, academic research consultant Mark Padungpat, assistant producer Nessa Concepcion, and research assistant Carly Call. Joe Shaneman oversees podcasts as news director at Nevada Public Radio. And our sound editing, mixing, and mastering is by Regina Ravazova of Open Conversation. I'm your host, Lorraine Blanco-Moss. Please take a moment to like and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Or tell a friend about us. It really does make a difference. We appreciate you.